there is a cynicism in our society that really has been brought about because of um, people's efforts to extend kindness and goodness and help often not being met with appreciation. There's a saying that has come about. I think it's a relatively new saying, uh, and perhaps you've heard it. It says, no good deed goes unpunished. How many of you have heard that saying before? And uh, sad to say that it really changes uh, how we sometimes approach uh, doing good deeds. One example, I remember having a conversation with another pastor. He said, you know, in years gone by, we used to try to allow our church to be a place where people could come and do community service. They'd get in trouble and, you know, they, they would need to come and work off some hours and, and uh, judges would often send them or encourage them to come to places like us and, and do it. And he said and we would do that and use that as a witnessing opportunity with these people. They'd help out the church by you know, mowing and cleaning and sorting and doing things, and it was a help to the church. But uh, at the same time, we tried to help them. He says, but he said, then, you know, a few years back, we had one of these people come in, and, and then they tried to, to fake an injury and try to get all sorts of uh, a medical disability and, and tax our insurance on it. And later it was, you know, it came out to show that it was fraudulent, but, you know, it tied us up with lawyers and courts and things like that, and our insurance went up as a result of it. And you can just see this poor brother, you know, just feeling sort of, uh, a little bit more cautious and wary, and understandably so to a point, but kind of wishing, you know, for the days when, you know, you could do a kindness to someone, help them out in some way, and it would be met with appreciation. You know, it does seem that we make an effort at being helpful and kind, and we are often repaid with unkindness somehow in our lives. Maybe you've experienced that personally. Christians, in particular, may feel the, the brunt of this testimony as we try to live in the world and we try to be salt and light. Those are positive things. Those are positive qualities. They're designed to be helpful, salt in a seasoning sense, light in an illumination sense. And, uh, and yet, uh, sometimes people retaliate against that. You think, well, I was, just, I was just trying to be a blessing. I was just trying to be an encouragement. And while we hurt now during those times, the Bible tells us that we still have the hope of heaven to come. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Hurting now, but heaven later. And I want to read Matthew 5, 10, 11, and 12 tonight as we come to this conclusion of the Beatitudes. It says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now just this morning... We were talking about the quality of being a peacemaker. 
And this morning I was mentioning how the peacemaker seems to take a, a little bit of its initiative from the previous verse that talks about being pure in heart. And how can, how can you really be a peacemaker if you're not genuine, you're not authentic? People will not trust you unless they think you're real in that situation. In that same way, I think that this morning's verse about being a peacemaker has something to do with us going into verses 10 and 11 and 12. You know, how odd it seems that this verse jumps into handling aggression. We were just talking about being a peacemaker, and now these verses, and notice we've pretty much had one verse for every topic so far, but this one seems to take three verses to discuss our, our last quality, if you would. And this is about people being aggressive towards us. And at the outset, we're reminded that while we follow the right course of action, we try to be peacemakers. We're not trying to stir the pot. We're not trying to upset people. We're trying to serve our Lord. We're mindful of the great commandment, love God completely. And the second one is love our neighbor uh, like ourselves. And on those two commandments... Hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus said. You know, focus on those. Everything else kind of flows from those commands. So it really comes down to love. And so being a, a peacemaker is, does demand a spirit of love. You do have to have that spirit of compassion for others. And, and then to, to show that love, show that compassion, and then to be met with aggression. Uh, it does sometimes dishearten Christians. It sometimes dismays Christians. Some of them like, you know, I, I tried to reach out to people and I felt like I just got my face slapped. You know, I, I tried that and it, it didn't work. And the important thing is to take them back and say, well, you're just in good company because look at what our Lord did. Aren't you glad it didn't hinder him when he literally got his face slapped? and so much more. When he was opposed constantly, viciously, tenaciously by the religious leaders of his day, while he was set aside, marginalized by the people he grew up around in Nazareth, you know, over and over again, here is the Lord, and yet uh, he is not received. So why should we expect better treatment than the Son of God received? So we may bless others, we may seek to be an encouragement to others, but others may still curse us nonetheless. And are we willing to continue to do the right thing, to respond in love, even if we do get that kind of response? Not all attempts at reconciliation will succeed. As you're thinking about this morning's message, and you may be thinking about individuals, well, I'm going to go to them, well, let me just... Again, reiterate, it's right to go through the steps and hope that the Lord will bring resolution to those problems. But we need to be prepared that ultimately we're doing it for Christ, and Christ is glorified whether the results come around the way that we hope and intend that they will or not. Why? Because moreover it's required in, in, the, in stewards that a man be found, what? Faithful. Are you faithful in it? Did you do your role? Then God is honored. 
as a stu- in you as a steward. So how can we be prepared when it comes to being hurt? We're, we're reaching out, uh, we're trying to reconcile, we're trying to demonstrate love, and yet there's probably hurt on the horizon for us. And we're just going to cover a couple things this evening from these verses. First of all, I want us to understand reason here. Why does persecution happen? I think it helps us if we can understand, if we could put it this way, the psychology of what's going on here. You think, well, it seems very backwards to me, but really it makes a lot of sense when you understand why people do respond mean when you are being nice in this way. Some find it very distasteful when they are confronted with true righteousness. For people who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, which, by the way, that's supposed to be us, isn't it? If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, verse 6 was talking about that. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does that look like? That's someone that is passionate about the Lord. That's someone that's excited about His Word. That's someone that's excited about being a Christian and sharing their testimony. That's someone that is talking about their church and about the wonderful things that are going on there. And when you start to spout those things around lost people who are opposed to righteousness, there's going to be that friction that exists. They're not only repelled by what we love, they also feel compelled to attack it. They don't just kind of go away. They, they become almost vicious. Why? To, to try to prove to themselves and others that they really have the better way and that we, who are proponents of righteousness, really are, are not following the right way. We're very narrow-minded, for instance. We're very bigoted. Anyone? I don't know if anyone else. I've been, I've been called a religious bigot before when I went down and just tried to explain that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And the response came back. So you're telling me that, that all these other religions of the world are wrong? And I'm like, well, you know, it's not so much me that's making that declaration. But I'm just saying, here's what the Bible says, is that the way to God is, is very defined, very narrow. And there are very few that, that find that. Well, you're just a religious bigot, you know like oh wow you know it just kind of took me off guard for a moment but but i could understand from their perspective as a lost person as to why it appeared that way on the other hand i would say to that person well you know for me it simplifies things because if if there were so many options and many of them could 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 possibly work then you're left to try to figure out but but god made it very simple this is the way walk ye in it you know, don't, don't get caught up in all these counterfeits. Just follow my son. He is taking care of it. Righteousness resembled in faithful Christians can be very convicting to lost souls. Your, your very testimony of your life is something that rubs them the wrong way because it reminds them of what they're not and what they ought to be. And that they are warring against God and the erring of, of a Christian who is not yielded to the Lord, is also going to be rubbed the wrong way, by the way. They, they won't want to be around someone who is passionate about the Lord because they realize, well, oh, that's what I should be, but I'm not for one reason or another. 
And it's not simply because of us. It's because of our Lord that we represent. And that's really what it is. You might say, you know, if it wasn't for us being Christians, lost people might think we're pretty nice people. You know, John 15, 18 through 19, Jesus prepared his disciples. If the world hates you, okay, and, and, you know, up to this point, they probably weren't prepared for that idea of the world hating them. And I often wonder, as he's saying this, what they imagine was meant by the world. They might think, well, that's the Gentile world. That's the Romans. But they're going to find out that that world becomes to involve their own Jewish countrymen. And so it's anybody who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so... If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. There's a, there's a sequence here. It's not, don't take it personal, it's almost like the Lord is saying. It really isn't ab about you so much as me, and now because you're following me, now they're going to hate you too. If you were of the world, he goes on to say, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That, that sense, there is a sense in which Christians have a, a measure of exclusivity to them. Not because we're being snobbish, but because we've been set apart by God. That's what sanctification is all about. If that's not going on in our life, then it's not representative of us being new creatures in Christ. And so, therefore, there is a, a natural pungentness about us to the world where they think, well, you know, what makes you so much better than me? And I'm like, it's only Jesus. Believe me. It's not because I'm smarter, not because I'm better than myself. But it really is because of the Lord. And you think, well, that ought to satisfy them. That's a pretty humble response. Well, no, because you're still better than them because you have the Jesus they don't have. So there's still going to be that resistance on their part. John Stott once said, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. That's what it is. People have value systems. In fact, everybody has a value system. Even if you meet someone who seems to have no drive in life, and they're lazy, and they're not industrious at all and you think well that guy probably doesn't have a value system well that is his value system lethargy slothfulness uh, allowing other people to do for him perhaps that's his value system uh, being taking his ease in life other people on their side could be very passionate about you know the ecosystem and the planet and carbon emissions, and carbon footprints, and things like that, and can go way off into left field with some of these things. You can say, well, you know, we're called as Christians to be caretakers of this planet, yes, but not to the point where we worship it, or we think that we have to somehow rescue this planet. We already know what this planet is destined for. It is an expendable planet. We ought to take care of it. But at the same token, you know, it's not... For we're not here to save the planet in that regard. So you're going to find people with value systems, and our value system should be very much rooted in Jesus Christ and the gospel. And when we're talking about reaching out to people, 
you know, our idea is not to bring in the kingdom by trying to help people become more, more righteous like the, the all-millennials. Let's redeem society somehow. No. Our idea is to reach Christians or individuals who are lost so they'll become Christians, so they'll be part of the kingdom, so they'll be ready for the king when he comes for them in that regard. You see, clash is always rooted in control. There's always a sense of who's in control. The believer ought to want the Lord to be in control. I want God to be in control. My life is yours to control. ought to be the prayer from our heart every day as we go through the day. The world themselves want to be in control. Individuals want to be in control. Uh, They don't want to surrender options to the Lord and look for divine guidance in their life. And so because it's it's a clash of control, then this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 6, 24, when he said, no man can serve two masters. Well, that's when you're talking about a master, you're talking about control. Who's in control? And you can't have it both ways. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You, you can't. You, people try to put one foot in the world and one foot into Christianity, and it doesn't work. Something is a sham, and it's usually the Christianity that's a sham in that regard. And so as, as we live in this world in con- serving the Lord, loving our master, so to speak, then we should expect that the world is going to have great animosity for us. The clash results in one despising the other, and that results in persecution. The clash is inevitable on some level. You can't get away from it. To avoid it, we as Christians would have to distance ourselves from our Lord. And I hope you say tonight, that's just not an option. I can't walk away from Jesus. He's, he's loved me, he's done so much for me, and I love him too much. So I don't really have another option other than to realize the world's just not going to like me. The world is going to, on some level, persecute me. So that's the reason. That's the kind of prep our minds for it. So then what should be our reaction? What should be our response to the idea that persecution is inevitable? Well, I think we need to understand the responses that are sort of a ten, what I call a tendency response. Uh, someone is upset with us, we might have a tendency to retaliate back to them. Now again, this is a tendency rooted in which? Our spirit or in our flesh? That's, a, that's rooted in our flesh, isn't it? And In other words, oh yeah, I'm not going to take that from you. And so we give it right back to them, so to speak. If they come at us with some sort of critical comment, we come back at them. Oh, yeah? Well, you know, you guys aren't so consistent either. You talk about us Christians not being consistent. Well, let me tell you, let's, you know, take the, the eco-warriors out there and say, you know, I remember about the, you know, these summits and, all these people that are leaders in the summits, and they're jetting in in their private jets, so I don't want to hear that. And we begin to get in a, a little retaliation. Folks, that's not profitable in what Christ is trying to accomplish 
in a situation like that. Another tendency for us to do is, rather than to get back in people's faces about it, is to sulk like a child. You know, they, they say it, our feelings are hurt, we're persecuted, we're alienated, and so we kind of go away and we're just kind of upset, despondent, disappointed. You know, we're, we're not fulfilled in our Christian walk, in our, our church community, because uh, we got a bad response from the, the guys that we bowl with once a week, or because of the ladies that we do a garden club with. And, and we're around lost people, and, and they make these comments, and we, we feel belittled in this way, and, you know, we're not bold enough to come back like the previous example, but we still go away kind of pouting. Well, that's not what the Lord wants either. Because why would we be pouting? Why would we be sulking if we were really content in Christ? If we really understood that we, we have the better way? If anything, there ought to be a sense of pity for them. They, they don't understand. They don't realize what they're missing. There is the grin and bear it response, which is also sort of a, a tendency. This is like the Stoics, you know. Um, you know, wearing it like a badge of honor and, and sort of building in their pride. Like, look at me, you know. It would be like Christians coming together and it's like, okay, let's share our persecution stories this week, you know. I bet I got beat up verbally better than you got beat up verbally this week. Well, that's not it either. That's, that's, that's making the focus on us, isn't it? And that's not what the Lord wants. Or we could pretend to... Uh, seem like we enjoy it like a masochist, you know, like someone's like, oh, yeah, that, that hurt, bring it on, you know. And some of these seem a little bit ridiculous, but, but people have often deviated from the, the real path. Those are all tendency responses. What is the true response? And the true response is to rejoice. But rejoice in the right way. You said, well, some of those other things you were saying there about tendency responses that you said were wrong Sounded like they're being happy. Well, there's a superficial happiness, but rejoicing in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, as Paul put it. While Christ does not encourage us to be unnecessarily abrasive, we're not supposed to go out and try to make it hard on ourselves so that people will pick on us. It is not a good sign if everybody likes us either. I remember the story of the circuit-riding preacher, uh, I'm going by memory here. I want to say it was uh, Wesley as he was going about. And he was going through the woods. And as he was just kind of fellowshipping with the Lord on horseback in between stations, it just dawned on him that he hadn't been persecuted rather recently for his faith. And he was really troubled in his heart about this. Like, wow, you know, maybe something's wrong. Maybe there's uh, a... Uh, some, some schism, something I've allowed in my heart. And so therefore, you know, Satan's not sending the fiery darts my way because he feels like he has me in his pocket for the time being or whatever. And so the circuit-riding preacher, right there in the middle of the woods, you know, slipped off his horse, got down on his knees, began to pray. And apparently he was close to some farmhouse and there was a guy, that, some sort of atheist or agnostic that was happened to be walking by the woods at that time and saw the circuit-riding preacher obviously in the posture of prayer, and it so incensed this resident to see this guy in prayer kneeling by his horse 
that he picked up a rock and flung it at him, and it, you know, knocked him in the head. And it startled the preacher, and he got up, and he heard some, you know, cursing from the other guy, and, you know, just take your praying somewhere else type thing. And the preacher got up, and he says, thank you, Lord. Why? Well, it seems like a very strange thing, but he was in his heart. He was genuinely perplexed and distraught that perhaps something wasn't right because to him he realized the norm was that, that there should be some persecution going on in his life. Now, we should not go out and look for it. Like, I haven't been persecuted this week. I need to go stir up my neighbors, you know, so that they'll say, they'll curse me out or something. That's, that's not the spirit of what's happening here. And so, what, what is going on here? Well, number one, persecution, it is required. We, we, rejoicing, I should say, in persecution. It is something that is required. It is in the imperative mode. It's a command here. We rejoice no matter what because we are commanded to. And I, I alluded to this verse already, Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. I love how Paul puts it that way as he reiterates it. Do it all the time, in every situation. No circumstance is exempt to it, no matter how hard things get. And by the way, in case you think that you didn't hear me right, again I say, rejoice. So, it's always the right response. Now, rejoicing doesn't have to be, you know, overt, where we're, you know, this goofy grin on our face or something like that. But fundamentally, it's a spirit and a heart attitude that we have where we're just really thankful to the Lord. There's a, a gracious gratitude in our heart always to the Lord, no matter what comes our way. As we were at Thanksgiving, we we're talking about the the pilgrims and about the, the attitudes they had and what they experienced there in that first winter and lost so many of their, uh, their, their fellow countrymen there uh, through the harsh winter, through the sickness, through the disease. And yet they were able to come back and say, you know what, but God's been good to us. He's placed us here. He's given us provision. I mean, they could have all been wiped out very easily. But that is, that is the key, that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, that we realize God does require of us to have a rejoicing spirit. It's also something that's to be repeated. In verse 12, he says, So persecuted they the, the prophets which were before you. And by repeated, what I'm saying is, uh, not it is true that we need to rejoice over and over again, but we need to realize as we're being called to rejoice, we're not the first ones called to rejoice. We're in good company. This is something that's been going on for quite some time. Go back to Elijah and Elisha. Remember, I think of the story of, uh, I think it was Elisha. He was the one that was the bald head, right? And, you know, and the, they were being taunted, you know, by the youths. Go up, thou bald head, right? And, and the Lord judged them very harshly, these young men. And there were bears called out of the woods. Really just set an example, as God often does in Scripture. But there's, you know, a persecution that God's people have always gone through. Can you imagine what Noah went through as he was building that ark year after year after year and on dry ground and saying, there's coming a flood, there's coming God's judgment, you need to repent. Uh, you know, that, that had to be 
uh, very difficult at times to try to encourage his his family as well to you know we need to keep at this oh but dad you know we've been doing this and doing this and it's so much work and you know my friends they they think we're ridiculous they think that we need to be put away somewhere and yet we realize that what we're going through today probably pales pales in comparison to what believers before have gone through you think about the reformers and some of the ones that were passionate about making sure the word of god was available in the common tongue of the people and standing up against the Roman Catholic Church and being unwilling to recant their beliefs in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone, gr through grace alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith, by faith alone, uh, for the glory of God alone. And they had these, these mantras that they would hold to, and yet many of them were either shut, aside, uh, shut up where they could not leave, or they were burned at the stake, such as William Tyndale, John Huss, others were persecuted for their faith. And so we have a legacy. We have a heritage of people who have gone before us that have been faithful to God and have paid the price for it. It's also an issue of who we resemble. In 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, where it talks about us being partakers of Christ's suffering. And there's the greatest one, right? Christ, as he came and he was mistreated worse than anyone was. In Acts 5.41, we see the early Christians there that as they were uh, threatened, you know, you need to shut up about this Jesus. You need to stop talking, uh, preaching in his name. And they were thrashed and imprisoned. And it says in verse 41 of Acts 5, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So the next time that, you know, you're, you're getting just an eye roll, because sometimes we kind of label that as persecution. You know, well, I was, I was saying this, and I kind of got this eye roll, or I got this shunning by someone that I know in the neighborhood. And, you know, that's me being persecuted. And it is a legitimate form of persecution. But we ought to just remind ourselves, I'm going through nothing, nothing compared to what my Lord went through. But if I am going through something, then praise his name that I'm doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian in Germany back around World War II and he was also an apologist. And the thing about Bonhoeffer is he never wavered, really, uh, significantly in his Christian faith and his antagonism for Hitler's agenda. He was imprisoned for the stand that he took, ultimately. And in April 1945, he was ordered to be executed by Heinrich Himmler in the Flossenburg concentration camp just a few days before the entire camp was liberated. And he wrote this. He, Bonhoeffer was a prolific writer. This is something he wrote about suffering. Suffering, then, is a badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, 
It is a joy and a token of His grace. Well put. So we do need to understand the right reaction and the right response. When I am accosted somehow, when I sense that persecution, and there's almost this temptation to wish I weren't a believer at that moment, I need to stop and think of of all the heritage, especially of my Lord who's gone before me. But thirdly, we're given the, the reward. What should we be hoping for? And what we should be hoping for is that we, uh, we would not likely imagine our own persecution as being a blessing. But not only is it blessed, but it is double blessed in a manner of speaking. You see, Jesus blessed it in the third person in verse 10 when he says, blessed are they. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, blessed are ye in the second person. I think this is his way of talking to us collectively, corporately, as individuals who will approach life with this loyalty to him. But then he personalizes it like he didn't do with any of the others, because this is perhaps in many ways the tough one for us. It's the last lesson. This is grad school of the Beatitudes, maybe we could put it. And if we really have a hunger and thirst for the way of righteousness, it's not a big step to be willing to be persecuted for that same righteousness. That's what he's saying here. We're going to go through this, and I love it. I love the way of the Christian walk. I love my Lord, not going to abandon it no matter how hard it gets. When it comes to the promise here, and it talks about the kingdom of heaven in verse 10 being part of the blessing, and that being theirs, we might remember as we started out in verse 3, the very first beatitude had the same blessing. It's almost like bookends as he starts and he ends. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's a reminder to us that for, as a sufferer, for right, like the one that is poor in spirit, there are, we are repulsed by any spirit of pride in ourselves. That's, that's the person who's poor in spirit. You know, there's a true humility there. And both are simply citizens of Christ's kingdom. The heavenly kingdom is their passion. This world is not our home. We're passing through. Our treasures really are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. They will say no to self, and they'll say no to others, regardless of the price, if it does not somehow advance the purpose and the calling of Christ in their life. Paul reminded the Thessalonians that all the trouble that they were facing with the right attitude would someday pay off. Don't stop doing the right thing. In fact, he says in 2 Thessalonians verses 1, uh, really 4 through 7, but really that verse 5 is the essence of that. And in that verse is the fact that those who are right suffer wrongly now, and it must be a token reminder that God is going to judge things later for them. Notice it says that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. The payoff is coming, if we could put it that way in the vernacular. There's a man known 
uh, fondly as the Bishop of the South Pacific. His name was John Selwyn. John Selwyn had at one time been recognized for his, his boxing skills. And this was before they wore all the, the headgear and before the, the gloves were as padded as they are now. Okay, It was a, a much more grueling sport in its early days. But he left that. He was touched by the Holy Spirit's convicting power and called to the ministry. He later became an outstanding uh, missionary. And the Southport Methodist Magazine reported that one day this saintly leader reluctantly gave a stern but loving rebuke to a man who regularly attended the local church where Cell 1 was proclaiming uh, the gospel on the mission field in the South Seas. The disorderly one resented the advice and angrily actually struck Brother John Selwyn a violent blow to his face with a clenched fist. I mean, he just hit this guy. And then in return, the missionary, John Selwyn, merely folded his arms and humbly looked into the man's blazing eyes. Well, the guy didn't know what to do with this. And so, very ashamed, really, and intimidated by this, uh, the man ran off into the night, into the woods. I mean, with his boxing skills and his rippling muscles that Selwyn still had, he could easily have knocked the antagonist out. But instead, he turned the other cheek and he believed to allow the Lord to take control of the situation. Years went by after this event, and the man who had assaulted Selwyn came to know the Lord as a Savior, accepted him, and he gave his testimony before the church. It was customary at that time, in that culture, for a believer to choose a new name for themselves. Kind of a neat practice if you think about it. Anybody's in, in Christ, he's a new creature, and so they would take on a, a new name. And so he came up, and when he was asked in front of everybody what name he wished to have assigned to himself as a new believer in Christ, he replied without hesitation, Yes, please call me John Selwyn. He's the one who taught me what Jesus Christ is really like. This brought real joy to the missionary's heart at this point. You know, he probably wondered, you know, was there any point in me just taking that one on the jaw like that? But he saw how the Savior's admonition to, to respond as he did, to suffer wrongly for his sake. Because the man was upset, not predominantly at John Selwyn for John Selwyn's sake, but because of the message of the gospel that so incensed him at the time. And it resulted in a very effective witness. It drove home the truth and the power of the gospel because of how he could see it made a dramatic change in the life of the one who was proclaiming it. And folks, honestly, people need to see that in our lives. We can invite them to come to church. We can hand them tracts all day long. But what will make a difference is when lost people see how we go through hardships, persecution, even from them, by the way, that we don't come back in a retaliation, but we receive it graciously knowing that our Lord went through way more than any of us will ever endure. And when we do that, 
there may be the blessing of people to come, but we ourselves rejoice in the immediate blessing that we have as really being part of the kingdom of heaven and knowing what it's like to be a citizen of it. May God use this to speak to our hearts. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, we realize that tonight in our flesh dwells no good thing, and it's in that no good area of our life that we often want to retaliate. Uh, We often want to say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. But we need to realize, no, Lord, vengeance is yours. You can repay. Lord, we need to be good takers. We need to be good victims. We need to see these as opportunities where your grace can be showered upon us. And we don't react in a fleshly way. We respond in a gracious way. So that people around us, Christians, will be strengthened and unbelievers will be convicted. And you will be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.